Reading from Matthew chapter 5, from verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard. And you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil.
Thanks, Sam. Let's pray and ask God to help us to understand his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this part of your word. Please give us wisdom and understanding to understand what you've written. And Lord, please apply it to our hearts to help us to see Jesus and to live for him from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. should just quickly mention too that there's no Sunday school back just yet. Uh, we're going to reassess that in a couple of weeks. But uh, there are some activity sheets for the kids. So if you're here and, uh, and you're a kid and you haven't got an activity sheet yet, your mum and dad might be able to help you to get one from the foyer. I, uh, I wonder if you've ever had a conversation that goes something like this. Uh, you're talking about God's commands in the Bible and then the person comes back with, yeah, but you Christians ignore God's commands about not eating shellfish and not trimming the corners of your beard. What gives you the right to pick and choose what commands you follow? It's just arbitrary. And maybe at this point in the conversation, and if you haven't had a conversation like this, maybe you've heard one, you're left scratching your head or the shaved corners of your beard. Uh, you did enjoy that seafood for lunch. Why do we choose to follow some commands and not others? Could they be right? And once again, you're confronted with that age-old question, what do we do with the Old Testament? Should it shape how we live or not? If it does, how do we decide? Do I tithe or not? Am I allowed to get tattoos? Do God's commands about sex and marriage still apply? How should I use the Old Testament to live in a way that honours God now? It's not an easy question. In fact, it's a question that Christians have been wrestling with for thousands of years. And so there's good reason that it might make you stop and scratch your head. And that's why we need to hear again these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. So far in Matthew, we've seen Jesus, the, the gentle king, traveling around Galilee, proclaiming a simple message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a simple message, but it's a powerful one. In Jesus, God's promised kingdom has finally come. The kingdom that God's people have been expecting for thousands of years. And Jesus didn't just tell them that his kingdom had come. He showed them by performing healings and driving out demons. And the proper response to this kingdom is to repent. It's to turn away from sin and to turn to God. In fact, to turn away from sin and turn to God by following Jesus, the king of God's promised kingdom. But what does that really look like? Well, here in Matthew 5, Jesus, he sat his followers down on the mountain and he's begun teaching them about what life looks like in his kingdom. What it really looks like to repent and follow him. We saw last week in the Beatitudes, he described the character of the people of the kingdom. They're poor in spirit, recognizing that they can't be righteous apart from God's provision and help. They're meek, using their power gently for the sake of others. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They show mercy to others. They seek to make peace. In short, the people of the kingdom reflect the character of the king. 
The, the one who, the gentle king who comes to serve others, who lives in dependence on God, who shows mercy, who's come to save his people from their sins. And it's these people who are blessed, who will experience a truly fulfilled, rich life in God's kingdom as God's people. But what about the Old Testament? How should it shape life in the kingdom of heaven? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to show us that he hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill it and to call us to radical heart obedience in his kingdom. Jesus unpacks that from chapter 5, verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. But there's an awful lot in this section. So we're going to break it into two parts over this week and next week. This week, we'll spend most of our time seeing the principle that Jesus establishes, that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament. And then we'll quickly zip through as we see him unpack it in four examples from the Ten Commandments. We're going to have to zip through these pretty quick. We'll get up to verse 37 today. But next week, in part two, we'll see two more examples that teach us what it looks like to love others, and we'll hear Jesus call us to radical righteousness. But we'll save that for next week. So come back. (laughs) First, see, we need to understand the principle that runs behind all that Jesus is about to say. In Jesus, the Old Testament is fulfilled, not abolished. He lays it right out there in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, in Jesus' time, the Jews sorted of their Old Testament scriptures in two main categories. The law, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, which is basically everything else. And so when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's really talking about the whole Old Testament. He hasn't come to abolish it, to do away with it or get rid of it. He's come to fulfill it. But what does that mean? Well, Matthew's used that word a few times so far. He's showed how the circumstances of Jesus' birth and ministry fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and patterns. Jesus' baptism fulfilled all righteousness, representing God's people and fulfilling the Old Testament expectations for a Messiah. When Jesus moved to Nazareth in chapter 4, Matthew said it fulfilled Isaiah's word about light dawning on the Gentiles in Galilee. Now, Matthew wasn't saying that that Isaiah was thinking specifically of Jesus. But he is saying that the return from exile that Isaiah was talking about pointed forward to something bigger and better. And that's what Jesus means when he says he has fulfilled the Old Testament. All the Old Testament was building to something bigger and better. All the Old Testament was looking forward to its goal. It was pointing to God's coming kingdom to the promised king who would rule God's people, to the rescuer who would defeat the snake, to the blessing that would bless all the families of the earth. The whole Old Testament was pointing forwards to this. Now, don't miss how big what Jesus is saying here is. 
He's saying that the whole Old Testament finds its goal, its fulfillment, its purpose in him. The Old Testament is a shadow, but Jesus is the real deal. The Old Testament is a movie trailer, but Jesus is the premiere. The Old Testament's like the engagement party, but Jesus is the wedding day. He is the fulfillment of the whole lot. It's all been pointing to him. And this means that the Old Testament is transformed by Jesus. After all, he's the one it's pointing to. But that doesn't mean it's done away with, not even a bit. See verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, Think of the dot on an I or the cross on a T. None of that will disappear from the Old Testament until the heaven and earth passes away. Until all God has planned and promised has taken place. Now a big part of that is about to happen in Jesus. His death and resurrection is the climax of human history. It's a moment we've all been waiting for. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. But all that God has promised won't be over until Jesus returns again. When he sets all things right and judges all. When he brings about the new heavens and the new earth with no more sickness or suffering or pain. And until then, the Old Testament isn't going anywhere. And this includes God's commands. The commands God gave his people at Sinai to show how they should live as his rescued and loved people. It includes the commands of the prophets as they applied God's commands to the people and called them to keep them faithfully. These aren't gotten rid of in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has come to bring. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These commands continue. But this brings us back to that question that we started with, doesn't it? What about shaving the corners of my beard? What about eating shellfish? Are we least in the kingdom of heaven if we break these commands? Well, you see, it comes back to what Jesus meant when he said fulfilled. You see, Jesus is the great goal or end of the Old Testament law. It doesn't mean that the commands are done away with, but they do find their goal, their fulfillment in Jesus. For example, Jesus himself declares all food clean in Mark 7, 19. It's part of those laws about ritual purity. And these laws were about keeping God's people separate and clean so they could come and worship God. But these laws are fulfilled in Jesus. You see, these laws were meant to point to how sin defiles us, how we need God to cleanse us, to come to him. And in Jesus, we are cleansed by his sacrifice for us. We don't need to avoid shellfish anymore because the reality that they point, those laws pointed to has come. We don't need the sign anymore. It's the same with the sacrifices in the temple. Hebrews 10 shows us that these are fulfilled in Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice. We don't need them anymore. 
But the way that the commands reveal God's character, the way that they show us how to live faithfully as God's people, loving God and loving our neighbour, they are fulfilled because they pointed to Jesus, the one who perfectly keeps them, and they continue to give us wisdom about what it looks like to live in a way that reflects Jesus' character, to live in his kingdom. Now, if that all seems a bit abstract, Jesus is going to show us four examples in a moment. Hang on to them. But there's an important principle here. You see, Jesus is saying that he is the key for understanding all of the Old Testament. It is all fulfilled in him. We can only read it and understand it in relation to him. If we try to read it and apply it directly to us without thinking about him, we're lost. It's fulfilled in Jesus. So from that, I want to say two things to you this morning. First, read the Old Testament. Don't shy away from it because it's tricky. Don't neglect it because there's some crazy stuff in there. And there is. Read it because it points us to Jesus. It shows us who he is and what God has sent him to do. It reveals Jesus to us. But second, don't just read the Old Testament. Don't read it without thinking carefully about how it points us to Jesus. About how Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills it. About how Jesus fulfills the law and we read them in relation to him. Read the Old Testament, but don't just read the Old Testament without thinking about Jesus. And because Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, he calls us to the radical heart obedience of his kingdom. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious bigwigs of Jesus' day. They were the extra super holy people. They outdid everyone in their attempts to keep God's law. These were the guys who even tithed from their herb jars. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness is more than these guys, then you will never enter his kingdom. If this freaks you out... If you realise how far you fall short, if you desperately want help with this, then good. Because remember, the first words of the Sermon on the Mount were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is those who realise that they cannot do this on their own, those who beg God for mercy and help, those who hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness, it's those who are truly part of the kingdom, those who are truly righteous. You see, even though the scribes and the Pharisees look good on the outside, we're going to see that they're a mess on the inside. Their showy religion is just a cover for the broken blackness of their hearts. They fool themselves by thinking that they can be righteous by their own strength. But the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is different. It's a righteousness that includes the heart and it flows out from the heart. It's a radical inside-out righteousness. And that means it's a righteousness that can only be achieved by the work of the Spirit. 
the spirit that God promised he would send to write the law on the hearts of his people. The spirit that Jesus sends and gives to us. This righteousness, it is a gift that we are given through the death and resurrection of Jesus. A gift that we can receive through faith in him. And that doesn't make Jesus' requirement for righteousness any less. We need to hear Jesus' words here. To stop mucking around with sin. To stop to take righteousness seriously. To cry out for God to work in our lives to make us more like him. But it does mean that we don't do it ourselves. We can't. We must begin by being poor in spirit. By hungering and thirsting for this righteousness. By crying out to God for his help. Because Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, he calls us this kind of radical heart obedience of his kingdom. What does this look like? Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us examples. He actually gives us six, but we're only going to look at the first four this morning. We're going to zip through them pretty quickly. He starts with example one. Righteous life in Jesus' kingdom looks like reconciliation, not hate. Now, most of Jesus' examples, they follow the same pattern. Jesus is going to quote the Old Testament with, you have heard that it was said. Then he's going to apply the law in his kingdom with the words, but I say to you. And then he's going to give us the practical implications for righteous living. Watch for the pattern. It starts with murder, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See it? Jesus quotes the Old Testament. It's one of the commands that God gave his people at Mount Sinai after he rescued them from Egypt. It's the sixth of the Ten Commandments. You can read it in Exodus 20, verse 13. But Jesus shows how it is fulfilled in his kingdom. It's not just about the act of murder. Jesus applies this command to those who are angry and insult their brother. Jesus applies the command to the heart. Those who are angry with and insult their brother face judgment. Judgment from God. Ultimately, the judgment of hell. So what do we do about this? Well, Jesus gives us a practical implication for life in his kingdom. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Just imagine the scene. You're there in the temple with your offering to the Lord. It's busy and it's hot. Thousands of people are gathered in the temple courts, milling around. You've been lining up for hours for your turn to offer. You've brought your bull to offer to the Lord as a burnt offering. This is a significant and costly act of worship. You're about to step up to the altar to the priest. It's about to be your turn, and then you remember that unresolved conflict with your mate. You didn't mean to, but you did the wrong thing. You let him down. 
and he's still angry with you, you really should go and say sorry. Jesus is saying, don't wait. Don't wait until you're finished your offering. Leave it there. Jump out of line. Go straight away and be reconciled with your brother. This is provocative. Being reconciled here seems to take precedence over worship because loving others is honouring God. And leaving unresolved sin between you and your brother isn't. Now I wonder if we take reconciliation this seriously. Seriously enough to leave what we're doing and make things right straight away. Or do we put it off? Life as God's people in Jesus' kingdom means we take reconciliation seriously. Seriously enough to interrupt our worship to make things right. Who do you need to apologise to? Who is it who might have something against you? Is it someone in our church family? Is it your husband or your wife? Do you need to apologise to your kids? Is it a grudge that you've been holding on to for years? Hear what Jesus is saying. Deal with it straight away. Now, I won't pause the service now and give you all a chance to go and do that. But straight after church this morning, seek them out. If they're not here, don't muck around. Go home straight away and call them on the phone. Pay them a visit. Don't put it off. Do it straight away. Do it today. Righteous living in God's kingdom looks like reconciliation, not hate. Second example. Righteous life in Jesus' kingdom looks like radical faithfulness, not lust. Look out for that same pattern again. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus quotes the seventh commandment from Exodus 20:14, but again he applies it to the heart. Even looking at another woman means you have committed looking lustfully at another woman means you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, this is more than just seeing beauty. This is deliberately desiring, imagining and fantasizing. You know when you've crossed that line. This isn't just for men. Anyone who looks lustfully at someone who's not their husband or their wife has broken this command. If we want to live in a way that's fitting for God's people, if we want to repent and follow Jesus, then it matters what we look at and think about. Looking at porn is not an acceptable sin for God's people. Movies and in TV shows that incite lusts are not okay for God's people. Books that stir your lustful imagination are not okay for God's people. It's not just about what you act out, it's about your heart. Now if you're convicted about this, then run to Jesus. Turn away from your sin and turn to him. Confess your sin, knowing that he suffered and died to pay for it. He promises that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Remember, the entry point of this sermon is not perfect righteousness that comes from us. It is to be poor in spirit, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to cry out, 
for God's help. But don't leave it there. Jesus says, do something. Take radical steps towards purity. That's a practical implication Jesus draws out. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, at times in history, people have taken these words of Jesus literally. Origen, who lived around the 3rd century AD, actually castrated himself because of these verses. But there's a problem with taking these verses like that. Jesus says that evil desires and evil deeds flow from our sinful hearts. Plucking out eyes and cutting off hands won't deal with the root problem. Jesus isn't advocating self-mutilation, but he is using a radical, shocking picture to call us to take sin seriously, to take radical measures for the sake of righteousness and purity. That might mean getting rid of your smartphone and getting a dumb phone. It might mean putting accountability software on your computer and asking someone to ask you about it. Might mean giving up on that TV show you really enjoy or being careful with what you read or what situations you put yourself in. It might mean something really costly. What do you need to do to take radical steps towards righteousness, not lust? All right, we're up to example three. Righteous life in Jesus' kingdom looks like real commitment not divorce. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus' quote here is from Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. Moses, he allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce for his wife and send her away. And this was actually for her protection. If she remarried, he could not try and get her back. And her certificate is a form of proof to protect her and ensure that she can be remarried and be provided for. And in Jesus' day, debate raged over what was sufficient grounds for divorce. One group said that if the husband finds anything displeasing, even if his wife burns his dinner, he can divorce her. See, God gave them a provision for the realities of our broken world, a provision meant to protect the vulnerable and to give grace, but they were misusing it for their own lust. But Jesus shows us how this is applied in his kingdom. For a man to divorce his wife is to cause her to commit adultery. He's responsible. And if he marries a divorced woman, then he commits adultery. Jesus' people shouldn't treat their husband or wife like a plaything for their own desires or play musical husbands or musical wives. They should take marriage seriously. Be truly committed. That's God's design for marriage, one man and one woman for life. Jesus gives one exception where there's been sexual immorality. 
That's a breaking of the promises of marriage. And this unfaithfulness means that adultery has already occurred. But again, Jesus is not giving the ideal here. Like Moses, Jesus is giving a law which is a gracious provision for life in our broken world. But the principle is sure. God's people take marriage seriously. Now, I do want to say, maybe this passage is hard for you to hear. Maybe you have experienced divorce or someone you love and care for deeply has. Jesus is not trying to condemn you. Where you have done wrong, he offers full and free forgiveness for us if we run to him. Maybe this is something that has been done against you that you didn't choose. Jesus knows and he understands. He offers you life, righteousness in him no matter what has happened. He can supply all you need. If you're married, hear Jesus' words here. Marriage is not something to be taken lightly. Keep working on your marriage. Keep talking to one another. Keep having fun together. Ask for help if you need it. I do want to say this doesn't mean putting up with abuse. Abuse in marriage is serious. It is sinful. It does not reflect the character of Christ. If you are being abused, don't say silent. Please reach out for help. We will listen and we will do what we can to help. And if you're not yet married, take marriage seriously. It is not something to be entered into lightly or carelessly. For God's people, it is meant to be a real lifelong commitment. Take it seriously. Which brings us to example four. Righteous life in Jesus' kingdom looks like reliable words, not false promises. Let's see one more example Jesus gives. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus, he brings together a few commands from the Old Testament in this law. Probably included here is bearing false witness and using God's name in vain. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day had this very clever system about how binding an oath was. The closer it was to God and his temple, the more serious it was. If you swear on the gold inside the temple, you better keep your promise. But if you swear on the temple generally, you don't have to. It was a silly way of weaseling out of their words, of making promises with um, fingers crossed behind your back. But Jesus says everything's God. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is God's footstool. Even the hairs on your own head are under God's control, not yours. As much as we might try and cover it up by going to the hairdresser. But Jesus says it's better to not make oaths at all. Now, I do think it's okay for Christians to take oaths in a court of law or to sign contracts. Jesus himself testifies under oath before the Sanhedrin. 
But he is saying that righteousness in his kingdom isn't taking clever oaths to weasel your way out of what you've said. It's being reliable with your words. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's a simple principle, isn't it? Mean what you say. Lies and half-truths come from the evil one, the father of lies. We're to reflect our king by speaking what is true. That means being honest with each other. It means saying what is true, not what we think we want people want to hear. It will mean having hard conversations sometimes. I know it can be really tempting to agree with someone to their face and then be passive-aggressive about it later. I think that's an Aussie specialty. But that's not righteousness from the heart in Jesus' kingdom. Righteousness is meaning what we say. Now, if we're honest, Jesus hasn't answered every single question we have about the Old Testament. There were no verses in there about shellfish or beards. But here, as he calls his people to live the righteous life of the kingdom of heaven, we see a principle. Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament. And so he calls his people to the radical heart obedience of the kingdom of heaven. An obedience that looks like reconciliation, not hate. Radical faithfulness, not lust. Real commitment, not divorce. And reliable words, not false promises. This is the from the heart obedience of Jesus' kingdom. Let's cry out to God for his help. Let's hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness in our lives. And let's ask the gentle king to do his work in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word and the way that it reveals to us Jesus and who he is as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. Please help us to live faithfully as your people with that from the heart true obedience that Jesus describes. Please work that in our hearts by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.